We're looking at Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20, and to remind you of where we are in the story of redemption, Genesis is really the beginning of the story of God fixing what's wrong with the world. Um, Genesis 12, 1 through 9, which Soren taught us about a couple of weeks ago, it's really the beginning of the end. It is God going to this random guy in the middle of nowhere who didn't know him and wasn't religious and wasn't a Christian or a faithful Jew or anything, just anybody, and God just says to Abram, random guy, go. Go from your country, from your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name into a great nation. And through you, I'm going to bless the world. And this is the beginning of the end, is really what it is. And, and we find in verses 4 through 9, that they're not on your sheet, but Abram does what God tells him to do. It's always a good thing when God talks and we don't. God talks, Abram doesn't say anything, he just starts obeying God. And he does it. And he picks up and leaves everything. He leaves his family, he leaves all that he has, he leaves his extended family, takes his wife, takes the, little, the few things that he does have, and he wanders off and goes toward this quote-unquote promised land, hoping that this God that he's never been introduced before is going to be faithful to make him into a great name turn his family into a great nation and to bless the world through him. And he does it. In verses 4 through 9, he follows God, and every time God's faithful, he sets up altars as to commemorate God's faithfulness. And then we get to verse 10. And see, this is what you need to know. The same promises for Abraham are the same promises for you. They directly apply to you today. They are the promises to God's people. And what happens in verse 10 is what happens in our lives, which is, it's all nice and fun when we're in our Bible studies, when we're in our large group, when we're at church, and we agree with how great all this religious stuff is and who Jesus is. But then we've got to go out and live life, and life is hard, and it gets in the way. And here's my question for you. We've all had great moments, and we rejoice in who Jesus is and God's faithfulness, and that's good. Here's my question for you about this thing called Christianity. Did all your wildest dreams come true? Did it make your life easy? Or did you find that life is hard and you had to figure out ways to hedge your bets? Because this is what happened to Abram. Verse 10. There was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there because the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues, because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men's orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are faithful even when we're not. I thank you that you are faithful when distractions abound. 
around us, dear Lord. I thank you that you are faithful um, when we even forget about you, dear God. I thank you that you have always been faithful, that you have given us not just your word, but a historical testimony to thousands of years of your faithfulness in light of our faithlessness. I pray, dear God, your faithfulness will become sweet to us tonight, that we would see in Jesus all your promises are yes and amen. In your name we pray. Amen. Here's my question, because this is a question that Abraham had to deal with in the text, and this is my question for you. Where does fear drive you? Where do the fears in your life drive you? Now, you might not think necessarily in those terms. You don't think, oh, I'm fearful, and so fear is driving me in these, into these situations. But this is what I mean. Life is full of circumstances. You're in a situation right now with circum- social circumstances surrounding it. You're going to go to Marble Slab later. You're going to go to classes later. You're going to be in social situations. You're going to be making decisions academically, physically. You're making decisions about your family. Life is full of circumstances in which there is no guarantee that everything's going to be okay. There's no guarantee that everything's going to work out, that your plan for your life is going to work out. Nobody can make that promise to you. My question is, where does fear drive you? Because we all want to know what fear does to us, our fear about the fact that we can't control any of the circumstances in our life. And in fact, a lot of the ways in which we sin is actually by choosing to believe that we have the illusion of control in one tiny area of life. We all want to know what to do to make it okay. Our fear drives us into, some, into beliefs or behaviors that will convince us that we can make it all okay, that we can eliminate the risk of pain in life. And I know... This is what drives you because I spend time with y'all. And what you want me to do when I talk to you is you want me to tell you what to do to make it okay or how it's all going to be okay. You want to rid your life of risk. You want to find out the right decisions to make in order to avoid pain, in order to avoid difficulty, in order to avoid fear whether it's in regard to relationships, roommate, or dating, or friendships, your career, your major choices, you want to know, what do I do to diminish the chance that life's going to be hard? I know it because I talk to y'all, and I know it because that's the same thing I ask of the men who shepherd me. I want to know, what do I do to keep my children in line to make sure they don't embarrass me and wreck their lives? What do I do? How do I minimize the risk of pain in my life. Where does fear drive you? If you looked at how you lived your life, day in, day out, and just paid attention to the patterns of the way you lived, and then you were honest and did deep introspection, how often would you see that fear is actually a motivator in most of your decisions? Whether it's in schoolwork. Right? Schoolwork is, a lot of y'all didn't actually want to come to college. You came to college because the world told you that to way, the way to create financial security is to go and get this degree in the stuff that you're not interested in and then get a job that you don't want to do. Fear actually led you into a life you don't like and didn't want to do. It's a relational intimacy. Fear drives the way we relate to each other. We manipulate each other all the time in both friendships and dating relationships, whatever it is, trying to get the other person to affirm us and to give us what we want so that we can feel loved, so that we can feel beautiful, right? Among the guys, 
this alpha maleness, we're all trying to one-up each other, whether it's with wit, whether it's with athleticism, whatever it is. We all have this desire. We always have this, uh, you know, I, I'm the worst at, like, the one-up story, you know? And it's fear. I'm totally intimidated by the guys that never one-up anybody because they might be the actually secure guys in the room who don't have to prove how tough they are. Whether it's dress, whether it's humor, whatever it is, your choice who you're going to grab lunch with tomorrow, the way in which you choose to answer penetrating questions about your life, where does fear drive you? And where it drives Abram is it drives Abram towards self-preservation. And this is really the point tonight. You have it on your outline. Kind of four sides to one point. Life is hard. There's no promise that it's going to be okay. Some of y'all have experienced that very intimately. You've seen it in your family. You've seen disasters come upon normal, faithful, good people. Life's just going to be hard. It's going to be hard for everybody. And then what we do with that is we usually respond in sin. And when we do that, we hurt everybody else. And here's the good news. God's still faithful. This is the story of Abram in chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Life is hard. We get Genesis 12, 1 through 9. God speaks to Abram, the thing we all want to happen, right? He starts his plan of redemption. He begins to build Israel for the sake of blessing the world. Abram's like, this is awesome. I'm building altars to you. I'm worshiping you. And then there's a famine in the land, a severe famine. This is not, there's a spike in the milk prices. This is people are dying. There's not enough food to support the population. The beginning of salvation just began. And Abram's trusting and he's acting and he's building altars. And then life comes in and it gets hard. The realities and circumstances of day-to-day life seem to get in the way. And Abram does what's normal. He goes to where there's food to feed his family. Have you had the moments in life, you know, those moments where God's beautiful, where you actually start to desire to want to follow Him for a moment. His grace is sweet. You know that you're forgiven. The gospel is good news to your heart. And all is going well, but then the circumstances of life get in the way. The hardness of life, it comes in in an acute way, and that's what's happening here. Life is hard, and nowhere does God promise that life's going to be easy. His promise is that life is going to be redeemed. And those are different. Life is hard. The famine came, and Abram responded in sin. That's the second point. We respond in sin. He goes down to Egypt to feed his family, but he anticipates a problem. Sarah apparently was beautiful. She was between 65 and 75 at the time. Um, Some people think that either the age is inaccurate or that she had an unnatural kind of youthfulness. And the text doesn't imply that at all, and most likely what most commentators assume is that because it's true that each culture defines beauty subjectively according to that cultural standard, that in traditional cultures, value, traditional cultures often value and see as beautiful things like age and wisdom as opposed to usefulness and wastefulness. So very well may be true, what actually is true. She's 65, she's 75, and she's beautiful. Abram sees complications coming in Egypt, so he conspires. Sarah, you're beautiful. These guys, they're going to want you, and it wouldn't be beyond the Egyptians to kill me in order to get you. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to say, you're my sister, and we're going to see how it goes from there. Most likely, actually, what he was doing 
is he wanted to act as her brother so he could fend off suitors and actually make promises to guys that she'll marry you but never actually give her away. So more than likely what Abram was doing was just trying to sidestep the issue, not necessarily sell out his wife altogether, but things get complicated because she is beautiful. The Egyptians notice. And the princes of Pharaoh saw her, and they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into Pharaoh's house. And find out, we find out actually in verse 19, what did you, why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? He married her. He brought her into his harem. And we know that because God brought plagues on Pharaoh. One of the ways in which God often punishes people who sin against God's people is through plagues. Now what happened here? It's this. Abram stopped trusting God. His goal of of self-preservation outweighed his trust for God. And you know what? It made sense. It was logical to do what he did. It was despicable, but it was logical. Me and Sarah were supposed to be the father and mother of a great nation through which God's going to bless the world. And if I die, that whole plan's failed, so I've got to preserve my own life. God didn't see this coming, so I have to make accommodations for my own self-preservation. Y'all, this is us. This is our sin. This is every day. We don't trust God, so we orient our life as to, so as to minimize risk and not do what He tells us to do. We don't, want, we don't think God can actually help us handle the hardness of life. So we don't follow Him. We don't do what He asks us to do. We, we manage risk. That's what we do. God's fixing the world. He went to extreme measures to do it, including the sacrifice of his own son for our sins. According to Jesus, God is tracking every bird right now on the planet. According to Jesus, he's preparing every flower for spring right now on the planet. He's numbered the hairs on every individual's head. Do you think he doesn't have control? Do you think he doesn't know what's going on with you? Do you think you know what, I'm working over here in these other areas. I'm doing a lot of mission work in Egypt right now. I'm doing a lot of mission work in Africa and Korea. Can you just manage your life right now? Do you think that you have to come up with a contingency plan for self-preservation because God can't handle the circumstances of your life? You see, here's the issue. The reason we don't obey God is not because we haven't worked hard enough. That's what we all think. I don't obey God. I feel bad about it, so I've got to work harder at obeying Him. The reason we don't obey God is not because we don't work hard enough. It's actually because we don't trust Him. Because trusting Him looks scary. It looked scary to Abram. It looked like it might cost him his life. So he made a plan for his own self-preservation. The problem of our own disobedience is not a lack of effort. It's a lack of trust. The problem of our own disobedience is not a lack of effort. It's a lack of trust. The reason we don't obey God is because we don't trust Him. And let me be clear about it too. If you trust God and you obey Him, His plan for your life most likely is not going to be a safely wrapped up, tied with a bow, easy American, upper middle class life. That's what we all want. If you trust and obey God, I don't think you're going to get that. That's what you're aiming for. This meeting's not for you. In fact, he tells us that if you follow him, it's going to be costly. 
because you, he calls you to trust him instead of carefully crafting a lifestyle of self-preserving faithlessness. We don't want to do hard things because we don't think God's going to take care of us. This is why we don't confront our roommates about their sin. It's because it's costly and it's hard and you might get hated for it. There's no promise it's going to work out great and they're going to love you on the other side. This is why we don't confess that we're cheating a professor. Because here's the problem. If you confess to a professor that you've been cheating, you might get kicked out of school. If you follow Jesus on this, it might cost you a ton. If you don't feed the need to have the right kind of body, if you choose to say, you know what, I'm addicted to having the right kind of body, so I'm going to stop exercising, you know what, you might get fat. It's a real possibility. If you get a filter for your computer because you can't control yourself, you know what, you might not get access to some websites that you do need access to that are good and innocent. It might cost you. If you confess sin to one another, the really dark stuff, people might find out you're a failure. It will be a mark on your name. If you tell somebody about Jesus, people will probably think you're crazy. There's tremendous social cost to that. If you give money away, you might not be able to afford the things you want. If you don't pursue the highest paying occupation in your field, you might forever be lower middle class or even lower class, and you might not get the things that you want. You might not have an iPad, right? If you hold out for a boyfriend or a girlfriend that loves Jesus, you might be lonely. You might be lonely your whole life. If you stop getting high, you might be depressed. If you love on somebody who hates you, who disagrees with you, who doesn't see the life, doesn't see life in the world the way you see it, who's hard to deal with and who's weird socially and doesn't give you anything back in return, you might not ever enjoy the relationship, you might not ever be noticed for pursuing it, you might not ever have any sense of reward. If you follow Jesus, it's going to be hard. There's no promise that he helps you remove risk in your life. There's actually promise that life will be difficult. Abram made a perfectly rational, it's morally reprehensible, but perfectly rational decision. I'm going to die if I don't sell my wife out to these Egyptians. I can't trust God, so I'm going to make a contingency plan for my own self-preservation. Do you see that disobedience is not an effort problem It's a trust problem. Life is hard. We respond to the difficulties of life in sin, and we hurt others. We live a faithless life of self-preservation, and what are the consequences? It doesn't say how it affected Sarah, but I don't think it's a stretch. Say it's not healthy for your marriage to have your wife sleep with kings of other nations. I've done a little bit of marital counseling. I feel like, you know, I'm somewhat qualified to comment on that. He prostitutes out his wife. When we were in Greece, we learned about a ministry towards prostitutes and got to participate in a little bit of it. And they told us a story about a boyfriend and a girlfriend who were dating and didn't have any money. And so the guy pushes his girlfriend and starts selling her body to other men. And when they told us about that, everybody's heart just wanted to kill him. This is our father. 
You know, our children sing songs, Father Abraham had many sons, and we sing about how he's our father. This is him. He's the guy who sells his wife out. And God inflicts a curse. When we hurt other, life's hard. We respond in sin. We hurt others. He hurts Sarah, and he inflicts a curse. Uh, God inflicts a curse on Pharaoh and his household. Plagues are common punishment that God has on someone who sins against God's people in the Old Testament. Abram's faithless self-preservation harms the people around him. This is the same with us. When you choose not to confront your roommate, you let them languish in their sin. You don't confront them because you don't trust God enough to do the risky, messy, hard business of love. What happens among guys and girls when you compete with the affections of the opposite sex? Your relationships with each other disintegrate, right? What happens when you believe enough money will keep you from pain and risk? You know what happens? The poor people around you never get taken care of. What happens when you exercise and exercise and exercise or diet and diet and diet because you've got to have the perfect body? You actually become part of the problem that's oppressing all the rest of us that's insecure and trying to follow Jesus and not be consumed with having a six-pack. You're oppressing everybody else. You're hurting the people around you. Because you're kind of not sure you really buy into this like godly character's beauty thing. What happens when you retreat from the realm of real, personal, face-to-face relationships and live in a virtual world of sexuality and false intimacy? You actually wreck what was supposed to be the beautiful and delightful sexual intimacy of your marriage bed. My children think that hoarding their toys is going to make them happy. And what it does is it makes them unhappy and everybody around them. Do you see that all our acts of self-preservation that are born out of a sneaking suspicion that God can't be trusted not only is evil, but hurts everybody around us? So what's the answer? The answer is this. The answer is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The answer is the rest of Scripture. The answer is that God remains faithful even to Abram. How was Abram delivered? The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. The Lord delivered Abram. It was God's faithful commitment to redeem the world through Abram that is Abram's salvation. The reason Pharaoh didn't just kill Abram for that is because he feared Abram's God because of what God had done. It was God's judgment on Pharaoh that caused Pharaoh to fear the God of Abram and send Abram away. And not just send him away, but send him away with all the gifts that Pharaoh had given him. It wasn't just a good turn of forgiveness by Pharaoh because he's a nice guy. It was intervention by the Lord on behalf of a jerk like Abram. In spite of his sin, in these circumstances, circumstances, in the midst of Abram's sin of unbelief, the Lord preserved him. And the Lord even actually blessed him with wealth. Pharaoh gave him gifts. These are kind of bride gifts that you give to the bride's family and sent him away with these gifts. He didn't just save him. He ended up blessing him. In the face of Abram's faithlessness. 
Do you see that the answer to your, to my faithless self-preservation is? Do you see what it is? It's the promises of God. It's the faithfulness of God. Our question over and over again, when you're really encountering Scripture, the question is always why. Why in the world does God keep using somebody like Abraham? In the mature question, when you start to struggle with the issue of predestination, we're not talking about that. But the first time you struggle with it, the first thing you ask is, why doesn't God save everybody? But when you start to maturely struggle with it, you actually begin to ask yourself the question, why does God save me? What merited me to be a chosen, to be predestined? That's the mature predestination question you need to struggle with. We worked with a prostitute ministry in Greece, and they're one of hundreds of ministries around the world. The church has set up ministries to war against people like Abram, husbands and, uh, husbands and boyfriends and brothers who send their family members into prostitution. Do you realize the church wars against people like Abram now? We did it last week. That's the kind of person we're talking about. Why does God continue to deal with this man? It's because our hope is not Abram's goodness and our hope is not our goodness. We've got to get that Jesus doesn't like us because we're a good person. He likes us because he promised he would. That is so much more secure. He likes us because he just promised that he would. You're not different. You're not better. You're not more deserving. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you're merely an object of God's promised mercy, and that is a sweet place to be. It's the Lord's faithfulness and the power of His ability to be faithful far outweighs our ability to be faithless. That's good news. Lay down your contingency plan. It's not working. It's only hurting the people around you. Come clean about your faithlessness. Be honest about the fact that so much of our lives, your professional, academic, physical, Social, self-preservation. It's not helping you. It's hurting everybody else. Step outside of it for a minute and see that God's still faithful. That He's still trustworthy. That in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Forgiveness is yours. Healing is yours. Peace is yours. Resurrection is yours. In Jesus, all of these are yours. Not because of you, but because He promised Real brief implications. First of all, there's no promise that life will get easy. This past week, again, we spent this time with these prostitutes, and it's amazing to interact with the people who've been doing this ministry for a while. We met several different women, one woman in particular. She's committed her life to actually just loving on prostitutes in the middle of Athens, Greece. Um, She's been doing it for years now. Nobody knows her name. Her life is hard. Her marriage is difficult because of it. The emotional toll is really killing her. It's really making her an emotionally unhealthy person. Every day and many nights until the wee hours in the morning, she brings tea and she brings affection and she brings hugs to women who barely speak her language. She's mocked by the men there and she's hated by the pimps and by the madams. She's never going to be recognized by this world. In a couple of months, I'll forget her name. She's never going to have money. Here's my point. Life's going to be hard if you follow Jesus. 
I can't help you manage your risk. Jesus doesn't promise that it's not going to be hard. And you have three options. The first option is you can sedate yourself. You can masturbate. You can play video games. You can work hard. You can drink. You can get high. You can exercise. You can escape the pain of life and harden your heart so that you won't feel the pain and so that you can't enter into other people's pain. And that way you can live a muted life where reality just gets muted and where relationships lose joy, beauty seems impossible, and love is just a mirage. And you can sedate yourself so that you can just dull the intensity of life until you die. That's one possibility. You can lie to yourself. That's the second one. You can persuade yourself that by your actions, you're a good person, or at least better than others. So you can live entitled because you think so highly of yourself, thinking that the problem is everyone else. And you can hate on the people that bug you. You can believe that you're good and that you're right and you're deserving. You have a right to hate your roommate. You have a right to run from loving on difficult people. And you can build your religious fortress believing that the problem is out there and not in here. That's the second option. You can sedate yourself. You can align yourself thoroughly. You can trust in the promises of God. Instead of trusting in your contingency plan, you can come to Jesus with the sweetest prayer in all of Scripture, Mark 9, 24. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And you can struggle with us as your brothers and sisters to figure out how to begin to follow this gracious God. Life's still going to be hard, but there's still actually joy to be had in the midst of it. Even in spite of our faithless self-preservation, God's working, God is redeeming, God is establishing peace, and He's bringing grace. There's joy to be had for those who stop trusting in the things of this world, but rather trust in the work and the life of Jesus and begin to labor and to look forward to the new heavens and the new earth in which relationships will be a delight instead of competition, in which our bodies won't break, and sin and evil and pain will be absent. There is actually joy to be had in a broken and difficult world when you know that you're bound for the promised land. Thirdly, the joy to be had is rooted in faith in Christ. It's rooted in faith in His death and resurrection. If you want proof that the promises of God from Genesis 12 all the way up to Jesus, all the way up to now, are all still true in Jesus, then all you have to do is look at the pictures that we took in Greece. We went to worship on Sunday, and right outside the front door of the church were the ruins of the temple to Zeus. It was awesome. The gods and the hopes of this world always come to ruin. Look at the Twin Towers. They're not there anymore. The symbols of the idols of our age, greed and materialism and security, they're gone. This past year, the financial roots of this country shook, and some of your parents experienced it in painful ways. The gods of this age are going to fade too. Your hope for a boyfriend and girlfriend is not going to save you. It's not going to be it's better. It's not going to make it better. Education is not going to save you. It's actually just making us more efficient at conducting evil. Now look at the church. In urban centers and in rural towns and in Asian cultures and Latino cultures, among the poor and tribal places and in developed places, it's doing what Jesus always said it would do, going to the ends of the earth. 
it has only ever grown. Every civilization has crumbled. The church has always grown. It's only ever grown in every culture. Unlike every other religion, it has transcended every cultural boundary. It's not a religion of the Middle East. It's not a religion of the Far East. It's not a religion of Africa. It is a religion that has gone to the ends of the globe. Now you might say, okay, but what about all the horrible things that Christians have done, even in the name of Christ? Not the least of which is Abram right here, right? And I agree with you. The church has done a lot of things. I've been responsible for a lot of the bad things the church has done. But isn't that a testimony that it's God's faithfulness and not ours that secures his promises? The Crusades in the Middle Ages, Inquisition, here in America, the church has been on the wrong side of the issue of racism for a long time. We're getting better. But God, just like he did with Abram, he's faithful even with messed up people. The messed up history of the church is not a testimony to the church being wrong. It's a testimony of what's true here. It's God's faithfulness. It's not us that makes it work, that guarantees that the promises are sure. God is faithful, and that's our only hope. Jesus died for our sins, and he rose again, and he's making all things new again. And it's true whether or not you feel it today. God didn't just preserve Abraham. He blessed him. Why? Because God is true to his promises. The only answer for your fears, the only answer for the difficulty in your life, to the insecurity you have, to the social anxiety that you have, to having Down syndrome children, to having difficult roommate situations and difficult parents, to broken hearts, the only answer to abuse, the only answer to materialism, to poverty, and the only answer to prostitution is the love and faithfulness of God to do what he said in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, to bless the world, to redeem it to do what he promises to do to make all things new again. And if you want to get in on this, all that he requires is that you bring to him all your contingency plans and just say, I wish this wasn't me, but it is. Will you bring your fears to Jesus? Will you bring your fears to Jesus' perfect love? John tells us what perfect love does. It casts out fear. That's good news. Let's pray.